Welcome to the St. Emelin's podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Cully. And this is our June edition of the Blog Post podcast, bringing you all that has been published on St. Emelin's over the last few weeks. Keen listeners will realise that we've actually missed out May. And this is for a couple of reasons. The first is we covered a bit of May's content in our April podcast, but also Simon is a busy man. And catching time together isn't always that straightforward, but we've managed it now and we've got a little bit of time to talk through a few posts from May and all of June. So we've got lots of content to bring you. But there's been lots happening outside of the St. Emlyn's universe since we last spoke. Not least, Simon, the introduction of a new social media platform on the block, that of Threads, which I believe we now have a St. Emlyn's account for. Oh, we do. Yes. Um, it's linked to the Instagram account, which has been going for a long period of time. The Instagram account wasn't that active for us because you couldn't link directly from WordPress all that's changed. So we can now publish direct from when we put a blog out, it'll automatically go out to Instagram. So I think the Instagram feed generally is going to be much better going forwards. Threads links to that, of course, it's the same thing, same company. (laughs) In complete contrast to what's been going on with Twitter, really, which has become increasingly difficult for us to engage with and to, you know, help spread the word. It's become increasingly difficult for it to be a communication device, which kind of was where it started. So yeah, I have no idea what's going on in Twitterland. So if you're keen to keep up to date with what we're doing at St. Emlyn's and you like a nudge when we're publishing stuff and perhaps you just like the content we put out when we're just highlighting links to other resources, then do follow us on threads, do follow us on Instagram and we'll stick with Twitter until it finally does implode. But it's a good way to keep up to date. And of course, do subscribe to the blog post and the podcast. That will make sure that any content we produce comes your way without you even really having to try about it. So Simon, let's get on with some clinical content because there's lots to talk through. And our first post we're going to talk about is from Thomas Shanahan, and that was about the NICE head injury guidelines. So these cover a wide range of aspects to do with head injury management. And you and I both remember the original iteration of these some years ago. But there's some things worth talking about, not least that rather sinister word or helpful word, depending on your point of view, consider. Yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? I did often feel in the previous iteration of the guidelines that the automatic requirement almost to scan anybody who's on anticoagulants, even after what apparently is an extremely minor head injury, seemed a little bit excessive. So in some ways, I quite like the new guidelines because it just says consider it rather than be an absolute indication for a CT scan when you see somebody with a head injury who's on um, anticoagulants or antiplatelet agents. But consider puts a lot of vagueness in there. And there's been some really good debate on Twitter, really great set of posts and considerations from Tim Coates over there in Leicester, Professor Tim Coates, about what does consider really mean? It'll mean different things to different people. I think his approach I quite like, which is that you consider doing the scan in patients in whom you think might actually be at significant risk. So that's related to the mechanism injury, to what the patient is like, what, what particular drugs they're on. But also whether you do anything about it, you know, what are the indications? What are we actually trying to find on this patient in front of us? Locally, we're struggling with this one at the moment. I think our current suggestion is that if you get down to the consider route, that you discuss it with somebody who's relatively senior in the department and have a a proper conversation with that and also do a bit of shared decision making with the patient. It's interesting, isn't it? That literally the day after these were published, a patient was brought to the emergency department with a very minor head injury, but was on an antiplatelet agent. And the paramedic had very judiciously written in their notes, needs consideration for CT scan to convey to the ED. Uh, And this patient was absolutely fine, very confused about why they had to come to hospital, not confused because of their head injury, but just perplexed as to why they needed to go to hospital. But it's interesting how those things can be misinterpreted or just reinterpreted by different people in different environments. So we need to bed this in, I think. It has caused a little bit of consternation already. Uh, Of course, this did always have a big effect on us helping discuss with radiologists. I don't see there's a big change in that, Simon. I think our access to scanning from the ED should remain the same. Yes, I think so. And um, in many centres, including our own, 
for straightforward trauma head CT scans, actually a discussion with the radiographers who are empowered. So we don't even bother the radiologists with this much these days. We, we have a director CT pathway as well. And this is the point at which I'm always reminded, Sam and I work in major trauma centres and perhaps our pathways have got a little bit further down the line than others. So I do know that there'll be colleagues in other hospitals who are still having relatively tortuous conversations with radiology colleagues. Uh, but the nice head injury guidelines are hopefully there to give you a little bit of a nudge and help you along. The other thing that it did mention was about a bolus of two grams of TXA for adults with head injury and a GCS score of 12 or less. Now, that is a change in practice, or at least one we've been considering. Yeah, and there's been a few centres which have been doing this for a while. I think the Royal London has been doing it for a while. I've been doing it for a while and managed to get it into our guidelines not so long ago. But it does make quite a bit of sense. One of the reasons why they originally went for the one gram as a bolus and then one gram over eight hours in bleeding patients was the the idea that if you were bleeding, the TXA would just fall out of you. So you'd have to give some more back. That's why it was an infusion. But of course, with most of your head injuries, they're not actively bleeding so much that they're going to lose the TXA. So it makes sense to get a big bolus in there early if you believe that it works. And, and we do. So yeah, go for it. Always makes me smile that we religiously do this bolus and eight hour infusion. And I think that was just a pragmatic idea that perhaps they lose it when they're bleeding. But I stood in recess rooms and people said, we've got to give it over eight hours. And and I think now there's an understanding that it's a bit more nuanced than that. And that was actually just the way to keep those trials consistent, I think, the crash trials and others, to make sure we were doing the same thing. But there's definitely a move away towards those boluses. It also means you don't have to have another syringe driver or you don't have another system for IV drugs hanging around while you're trying to get a patient sorted in my th- to theatre or scan. And, and it just gets done, doesn't it? And sometimes getting things done is really helpful. Now, as we're talking about radiology, Simon, why don't we just whiz on to just think a little bit about contrast-induced nephropathy? This was another guideline, this time from the Royal College of Emergency Medicine and the Royal College of Radiologists, to talk about contrast CT and whether or not we need to know the patient's renal function. You've written a post here and you've described it as sense at last. Is it sensible? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, we've we've been around this sort of topic for years, haven't we? And the data seems to be pretty strong that people who end up with a nephropathy or you know an AKI after a CT scan, the evidence would really point to the fact that it's due to whatever condition you were CT scanning them for and not the contrast we use. We've had crazy conversations in the past, haven't we, with patients who've got potentially time critical injury or illness and saying, oh, we need to wait for the creatinine to come back before we decide to do the CT scan. And then the creatinine comes back and they still need the CT scan. So you just do it anyway. You know, there's a lot of insanity around the decision making process that's gone on around this. It's also been debunked that, you know, giving people fluid boluses to protect them beforehand from any potential nephropathy doesn't work. So it was just all over the place. And it's really good now that we've got proper guidelines agreed by the radiologists and the emergency medicine community that for critically ill and injured patients, there is no indication for waiting to do to the scan and just get on and use it. It should be that easy. It won't be came out. I know colleagues who saw this, who had a conversation with their radiology colleagues who said, we need to wait. And they said, have you seen the guidelines? And they said, yes, I have seen the guidelines and I have read them, but we're not doing that here yet. Big sigh, big sigh. Um, it will take a little time to bed in, but it's great. It's really good. And it's great that the College of Radiologists and the uh, Royal College of Emergency Medicine have um, got together on this one. So I wouldn't often do this on the podcast because reading things out, I'm not an audiobook, uh, but I just want to read those recommendations for you just in case you haven't read the report yourself and you're not sure. So this is exactly what it says. Recommendations for emergency scans. Patients requiring emergency iodinated intravenous contrast CT imaging should proceed to scanning without delay specifically 
Measurement of renal function should not be considered a prerequisite prior to scanning. The electrical requesting system should reflect this. Pre-existing renal disease, diabetes mellitus or medications such as metformin should not delay scanning. The electronic requesting system should reflect this. Age is not an independent risk factor for AKI and should not delay scanning. An intravenous fluid administration should not be considered a prerequisite prior to scanning. I hope I gave that enough sort of verve there to, to inspire people that the word not was important. Yeah, it's, great. it's great to see a guideline that's so definitive as well. <laughs> but, you know, having just had our comments about the head injury guideline, it's great to see something which is so definitive and so clear. And sometimes we need a bit of binary thinking in emergency medicine. We have too much going on. We don't want to necessarily have, oh, let's think a lot about, a lot about this. We want an evidence-based or at least authoritative guide on what to do. So that's really helpful. Uh, let's think a bit about drugs, Simon. Uh, we've got a post here from Molly Bowman, who is a medical student up with you in Manchester. And this is a point to, to just say that if you are interested in publishing something on St. Emily's, please get in touch. It's really tricky to get things sometimes into journals and those other places, but perhaps getting them now onto a renowned, or at least I hope renowned social media blog post type site, then it's really good. And Molly has done that. And she's written a really useful post about packers, pushers and stuffers. These are all terms that we hear, but this really helps us think about what those different terms mean and also what we should be doing to investigate them. And also when we don't need to investigate, or at least the investigation is part of a criminal investigation and not patient management. Simon, you see plenty of these, I'm sure, in Manchester. We see them down in Southampton. And this is a helpful bit of learning for people who who perhaps haven't come across this or a little reminder for those of us who do. Yeah, I thought it was really good, actually. And um, interestingly, in Manchester, where I work, there is a large hospital between ourselves and the airport, which is quite convenient in this respect, because most of these patients are coming in or many of these patients are coming in. Uh, certainly the, the packers are coming in as transportation. So they come in through the airport and they get taken to a another hospital. I guess you might get it in Southampton for various different reasons. You've got air and sea coming into you, haven't you, really? But um, those three things, what we're telling the packers, what Molly's saying is think packed full to the brim. So these are people who take large amounts for concealed transportation. And, and these are the ones that you mainly see, these amazing CT scans and amazing plain imaging. So these are the real the drug mules who are bringing stuff in. The pushers are the ones who are probably taking smaller quantities of drugs, often inserted to cavities and rectum or vagina for storage or for um, concealment. And then stuffers are the ones who actually are probably the worst, um, or not the worst, but the most worrying ones for me. These are people who maybe have drugs in the house or have drugs in, the, in, their, in their close environment. Somebody comes in, they have to get rid of it quickly. So they just stuff the face with it. Um, and unfortunately, those are the ones who you may not get a great history of um, ingestion from, but also they're not particularly well wrapped. So those are the ones who can suddenly release very large quantities of drugs into the body. And they're the ones who we will maybe see in the research room with very significant physiological compromise. So really quite interesting. And, and, and also the legal aspects are there. Molly goes through that. Very, very interesting stuff. Important to remember as well, this isn't just young men by any stretch. In fact, we need to think about this in children and pregnant women. That is on the rise when it comes to packers and cases of body packing in those individuals. It's, it's happening more and more. Molly points out over a thousand children were enslaved by drug dealers in 2019. That's four years ago. I can only imagine it's got worse since then. So if you work in a pediatric emergency department, this is something you may be confronted with. And of course, then it's about trying to manage the medical problems if whatever has been stuffed, packed or whichever is causing problems with the patient. And you might have to think about how to do that. And then imaging. I think this comes back to, well, CT is probably the one, isn't it? Over time, we've got more and more used to using CT scanning, again, with the caveat that Simon and I work in big centres with 24-hour radiology cover. But this is where the sensitivity and specificity of CT is hugely much better 
than that of x-ray or even ultrasound. Perhaps that's something to think about. And I'm sure many hospitals will have guidance for what to do in these cases. Because again, this is one of those where if you have this patient, you need to do this, you don't need to do that. And medical legally, it's important to consider the consent of the patient and why you're doing this investigation, as particularly with CT, because that is radiation. And we should be consenting people, I remind everybody, that if we're doing a CT scan, that is an invasive, if you like, procedure. And you need to be able to get informed consent before that happens. So there's lots in there. Uh, well done to Molly for writing it. And as I say, if you're a medical student or doctor or other healthcare professional and you've got a piece of work and you'd like it to get out there to a, a relatively large audience, then get in touch via the St. Emeline's email address on the website. and We can always have a look at it and then hopefully put it into a blog post to disseminate that information because that's what we're all about, getting the information out there. Simon, on to another hot topic, RSI or fear, as we call it in the pre-hospital environment, it seems now. So intubating people with drugs, uh, either in the emergency department or the pre-hospital environment, we've been struggling with a lack of ketamine. So if you work in any of these environments, you'll know that we're running short of that 10 milligram per mil ketamine that we've been so used to using and got so familiar with. And this was a question about whether we use Atomidate. I have to admit, Atomidate I've not used since my anaesthetic days, which were in the early 2000s. But this was a thought. And Ken Milne, a hero of ours over at SGEM, has done some great work. But you've just praised that a bit here. Where have you got to with Atomidate and Ketamine up in Manchester? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. We're, we're running out. Of, we're running out of the, the usual stuff. I think we're using Swiss ketamine at the moment, which is slightly different to the, to the UK. I think it's a racemic version. But anyway, one question was asked: is why don't we go back to using Atomidate? Because that's what we used in the past for a lot of our critical care type intubations. And I'm quite familiar with it. In fact, I've probably used it a couple of times in the last few years around cardioversions. I used to use it for cardioversions, although, but it's a decent drug. It's pretty cardiovascularly stable. Not as good as ketamine. So could we go back and, and use it? And actually, the study that we've preceded here is um, a, a meta-analysis of 11 randomized trials, over 2,700 patients, so pretty decent you know, evidence-based, pretty decent numbers. And actually, the evidence seems to be relatively consistent that the outcomes aren't as good, particularly in terms of mortality. Now, why that is, lots of different reasons. Um, it's not as cardiovascularly stable as ketamine. Um, it implicated in adrenal suppression, although there's always a bit of a debate about whether a single dose really had that much of an effect. But the data would suggest that, yeah, if you're running out of ketamine, UK ketamine, then go and find some other ketamine from somewhere else, Switzerland or Poland or wherever. Don't use the Atomidate unless you have to. And in our service particularly, we've now got a 50 milligram per mil version of ketamine. And it's interesting that some of our concentrations are not licensed to be used as PGDs for our paramedic colleagues. So we've moved down the lines of our paramedics and others on the pre-hospital service being able to use ketamine, but it's very specific. And so we've had to think very hard about which agents are for doctor use, which agents are for paramedic use, how we make sure we can communicate that. And this comes then back to making sure that you talk within your teams. And when you're drawing up your drugs for your RSI, which can be quite stressful, particularly in the pre-hospital environment and in the recess room, you're familiar and you double check what's going on. So if nothing else, this is a reminder to check the concentration of ketamine that's ended up in your drug cupboard because you may have missed the email telling you that now it's 50 milligrams per mil and not 10 milligrams per mil. So keep your eye out and always check. 
Yeah, and another shout out to the ED pharmacists um, around the world and around the country. If you don't have one, they are some of the most fantastic people around. When this sort of thing arises and you have to change concentration or you have to change your source or your supply, it's not as simple as the usual doctor thing is, oh, I'll just grab another one off of the shelf. I'll dilute it and we can all use that. It's a bit more complicated. It's a lot more complicated. Speak to your pharmacists. They're wonderful people and incredibly helpful. On to another sort of airway topic, but this is more global than that, really. This is a very moving post about, well, described as just a routine resuscitation. I know this post has been spread far and wide on other blog posts as well and blog sites. And that's really important because acknowledging we all have different audiences. And this is about the AMAX4 algorithm for anaphylaxis and asthma and arises from a really, truly tragic case of Max McKenzie, who had anaphylaxis-induced asthma And then during some delays and other problems with his management, it meant that he didn't have the appropriate airway intervention. His father is a consultant and was actually in the end involved in his resuscitation. I can think of nothing more. I I can't even, in fact, I can't talk about it. To imagine having to try and resuscitate your own child, having been the father of three teenage boys. Uh, Yes. Anyway, let's move on from that. But this was about... Max dying from his hypoxic brain injury, which and Ben has come up with and worked with others to give us this AMAX4 guidance about what we should be doing in patients who have anaphylaxis-induced cardiac arrest and airway compromise. Simon, tell us a bit more about it, because this came to us via you, didn't it? I get exactly what you're saying about the emotional elements of this case, and I would strongly recommend people read it because of the, the the story behind this is incredibly powerful. Putting that to one side, what Ben's done is taken, you know, that awful experience and they said, well, okay, well, how do we generalize this to other areas and other resuscitations and how do we make the world better in the future? So moving away from case in particular, what does the AMAX for algorithm say? Essentially, it's, a, it, it's about particularly food allergies, which are in the data are more likely to cause airway and breathing problems rather than the circulatory issues, although that's not an exclusive difference. There are a couple of things in the AMAX4 algorithm, which I think are quite good from a general human factors thing. The first is that it talks about what they call a hard stop, about the time it takes from somebody not to have an airway, no intubate, no ventilation, no airway to having a hypoxic brain injury being four minutes. That's where the four comes from. And I think that from a human factors thing, that's quite a good thing to articulate. It's quite a good thing to have in your head, but it's quite a good thing to share with your team because it does prioritize and really focus people. I like that a lot. And the second thing is really a wider debate about intubation as a resuscitation tool. And certainly for this group of patients and the asthmatics and the people who are difficult to ventilate, they have abnormal lungs, then you know, we have this big move away from intubation into eye gels and other forms of supraglottic airway, but they may not be the best tool for this group of patients. And therefore, an early intubation, an optimised intubation with a, a skilled practitioner, with all the bits and pieces that you put in place to get good first pass success with the right drugs within a time frame, I can really see the logic behind this. And I quite like the way that Ben has taken terrible experience and put this into something generic which I think addresses not just the medicine, but also and the pathology, but also the human factors around this. Because a bit like the Elaine Bromley case, it's about the human factors. It's not about whether you can put a blue tube in a hole. It's about how you get to the point where you realise you've got to do that and get on with it and do it as well as you can. Um, so it's powerful stuff, but I would recommend a good read of this. So just to confirm what AMAX4 stands for, because it is an acronym. So A, the first A is for adrenaline, and that's talking about giving a push dose 
every 30 seconds to 10 minutes or a cardiac arrest dose. So adrenaline is the first A. We know how vital that is in airway management and anaphylaxis management when you've got all this edema and swelling and other stuff. And we're trying to make sure that, that we can try and reverse that. So A max four, A is adrenaline. M is muscle relaxant. So of course, sometimes with an eye gel, you might not be using a muscle relaxant here. This is about using a muscle relaxant and getting an endotracheal tube in place. And that the first attempt should be your best attempt. And we all know that. And hopefully we're all set up to try and do that. So A, adrenaline, M, muscle relaxant. The next A is airway. So as Simon talks about using a supraglottic airway, those trials that we talked about were non-inferiority trials. So it wasn't saying that supraglottic airways were better than an endotracheal tube. It was saying they were probably just as good, but in a wide group. And here we've narrowed it down. So we're looking at a specific group. And then the X is extreme care. So you might need extra bronchodilators, extra vasopressors. You've got to think about pneumothorax. There might be obstructive ventilation. So that gives you your A max. And four, as Simon says, is the important four minutes. That's how long it takes to get from hypoxia to brain injury. So you can set a timer and you know that you've got to have an intervention. There's much more detail in there. There's videos, there's links to the website. Can't recommend it highly enough. And this is one of those things that you don't have time to think about and look up in the recess room. We need to plan in advance. So go and do some work and think about it and be ready should this case happen, because they're pretty rare. I don't think I've seen many in my career, Simon, and I'm, I'm guessing you haven't either. But when it happens, you need to know what to do. Absolutely. And there's I've had a, a case not so long ago where things went well. And so, you know, in contrast to, to, to Ben's case, when things are managed well, the outcome can be absolutely fantastic. And, we, you know, literally we're talking about a patient who ends up in ITU and they go home the next day, having been basically at death's door. So it's really important to, to sort of emphasize that. While we're talking about airways, let's think a little bit about video versus direct laryngoscopy for tracheal intubation. And this was a post by Laura Howard. Again, great to have other voices on the blog posts and always welcome to have contributions. So please let us know if you would like to. It's Laura's been part of us and Emily's team for some time now. This is referring to a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine comparing video laryngoscopy to direct laryngoscopy and which is better this has been a long debate the much missed john hines did a superb talk on this in smack some years ago now and talked about the benefits of direct versus video but this really takes it to another level and thinks about which should we be doing and what should you be expert in simon are you a video man uh, increasingly so. So I grew up with direct laryngoscopy and that's how I trained. And my approach has always been that actually I'm not quite sure that the video laryngoscopy is always going to work. So, I've, you know, keeping my DL skills up as much as I can. But I think this paper and also my experience increasingly in, in pre-hospital care suggests that using the VL is not a bad thing. It's not a, it's not an admission of failure. And I think when we first started thinking about this sort of thing, there was that attitude, well, <laughs> you're not good enough to do a DL, you'll need the VL because it's a rescue device. And that has definitely changed. So VL, I think it's good for lots of different reasons. It's excellent for teaching. There's a superb podcast on this actually from uh, who else? Scott Weingart on MCRIT that talks about the number of intubations that you need to do before you become competent. And actually, by using video laryngoscopy, you can teach much better, you can coach much better, you can mentor people through learning that skill much better. Yeah, I'm increasingly a VL sort of guy, to be honest. The concerns about VL, particularly pre-hospital in A&E and emergency room, if it gets obstructed, it can be a bit difficult. But actually, it's not really, I don't find that too much of a problem, to be honest, where the camera is. It seems to be all right with pooling of uh, fluids at the back of the throat. Yeah, so yeah, I'm a VL. What about yourself? I'm a convert. 
Uh, absolutely. So I was a traditionalist. I first did anaesthetics in 1999. Gosh, wh- how are we getting so old so fast? Anyway, 99 was when I did anaesthetics first. And I was a thio sucks tube. That was my training with a DL. And the idea of video laryngoscopy didn't exist because, well, because it didn't exist. And over time, it's gradually come in. And then there's been this myth about it being locked away in a cupboard that anaesthetists could then use. And, and like everything, it gets more effective and smaller and easier to, to use. And, and now we have it in our bags for the pre-hospital service down in Hampshire. So it is our first choice intubating device. And so I've been using VL. And actually, I've found it really useful. Not least because you can verbalize what you can see and you can share that with other people. So you can talk about your view. You can use it as an education type tool. So if you've got medical students in the recess room with you or or other clinicians who are looking to learn, you can show what you're looking at. And I think it's great. And because we've got these new devices, which are relatively small, easy and work well, then I think it's it's the future, really. I don't see any reason not to use it. And that's me as a big, strong traditionalist enjoying the old school type stuff. Yeah, I agree. And this paper sort of backs that up, really. So it's a multi-centre randomised control trial, 17 EDs and intensive care units looking at intubating critically ill and injured patients. Interestingly, they, there's always a bit of selection in these ones so that they took out the patients in whom they definitely, definitely, definitely wanted to use a VL on. So it's not everybody, it's not all comers, but you know, fair enough, still a lot of patients going through. And what they showed is that certainly in terms of first pass success, the video laryngoscopy was better than the direct laryngoscopy. Some subtleties in the data there, the differences actually reduce quite a lot. So there's very, very little difference once you get beyond about 100 intubations. So the more experienced you are, the less that the VL makes a difference. And that kind of makes sense. I still don't have a problem with it. I still think it's a reasonable thing for us to use. And they were very specific about what first pass success was, weren't they? So we all judge ourselves by first pass success. And I'm not entirely sure it's a a great metric, but it's a metric all the same and it's easy to measure. And their first pass success was really quite low compared to what I think we'd expect. But they did define it very particularly as the placement of an endotracheal tube in the trachea with a single insertion of a lingoscope blade into the mouth and either a single insertion of an endotracheal tube into the mouth or a single insertion of a bougie into the mouth, followed by a single insertion of an endotracheal tube into the mouth. It's all single stuff. So if you had a, a quick look twice or you you came in and out with your laryngoscope blade or whatever, that means you were no longer first pass success. So you could have had a look, decided your blade was the wrong size, come out, replace the blade, put it back in. That would no longer be first pass success. And so although we do talk about first pass success, and I think we all expect far in excess of 90%, and they were getting something more like 70% in some of the groups, I think it was because they were particularly vigilant about what that meant. Counter would be that in the experienced operators, they were getting higher successes. So I think one of the issues why they've got such a low um, result here is I think quite a lot of the people doing the intubations were relatively novice. And I don't think they had a huge amount of experience, which also sort of confused their data a bit. The bottom line is, it's certainly no worse There are many advantages. It's got to be the way forward. On to the patch trial, Simon, and some more evidence-based medicine. And again, this is partly us pointing you in the direction of other resources. There's so much out there that you can utilize for free. And this comes down to the critical care review site. Although having said that, there is a change afoot and to, to subscribe to that does cost a small amount of money now. But where they publish these high impact research articles and discuss them and they have experts talking about them, that's where Patch was first discussed. Now, Patch, it's the pre-hospital antifibrinolytics for traumatic coagulopathy and hemorrhage study. Sometimes they work very hard to get these acronyms, don't they? And it's really talking about the use of TXA in traumatic bleeding. 
Has this changed anything for you, Simon? Well, not for me particularly, no. Um, It's a really interesting trial. Patch came out of quite a lot of scepticism, particularly in North America, but some in Australia as well, about whether or not TXA actually saves lives. And one of the arguments of things like the CRASH-2 and the CRASH-3 studies, which are the biggest trials of TXA in trauma, is that they um, involved a lot of countries where it wasn't a particularly high income health service. And therefore, maybe the differences would not be manifest if you did it in a well functioning, well-funded health economy. And that was one of the major criticisms that, you know, certainly in North America, it was like, well, we don't believe in the CRASH-2-3 trials because it wasn't done there. Fair enough. And so patch two, one of the reasons why it came about, I believe, is that it was to demonstrate whether or not TXA had any benefit in a well-structured, well-functioning emergency care system. And certainly South Australia or Southern Australia, because I think it's in Victoria, isn't it, is a very, very good place for trauma care management. So randomized control trial, giving TXA or not giving TXA and looking what the outcomes were. Now, interestingly, the outcome that they looked at was function and function at six months uh, using the Glasgow outcome scale extended version. And they considered a positive result to be somebody who had low moderate disability or better. And they considered a poor result for somebody who had upper severe disability, which is patient who's dependent for daily support for mental or physical capacity, um, usually a combination of both. If the patient can be left alone for more than eight hours at home, it is upper level of. They consider that to be a negative outcome. So looking at the GOSE scale, which is you know used widely at six months, it's quite good because we, in general, in St. Emelands, we're quite interested in function rather than just sort of short-term outcomes. Having said that, a bit of scepticism about whether or not a drug which is given for bleeding is really going to make a long-term difference. Anyway, what did they find? In terms of their main outcome, their principal outcome, they did not find a significant difference in the number of people with a positive functional outcome, in their opinion, at six months. The headline for the main outcome of this trial is there is no difference between the two. And some people jumped on that and said, well, we should stop giving TXA then. Actually, if you compare the results to pretty much every other trial of TXA in major trauma, it's consistent in that the number of survivors is significantly more with TXA than not. And so you can look at the number needed to treat and the number needed to treat to get one additional survivor in this study is about 22, 23. That's quite interesting. But those additional survivors have more disability. No great surprise, they're major trauma patients. But it is consistent with the others. So what this trial says to me is that if you give TXA, more people survive. At six months, some of those survivors will have more disability. But six months might be too early. And actually, in order for us to improve all the other things in in trauma, all the rehab and stuff, you first got to survive. So pretty clear to me, give TXA. And lots of people will disagree with me. I think the other thing about that is, is that I'm not sure that I'm best placed to decide what is a good outcome. It's not down to me to decide for my patients what level of disability is acceptable to them. I don't know that I can do that. I'm not even sure I could do it for myself. And so trying to say that a level of disability where you could be left at home for a few hours and cope okay is bad. Maybe that's okay. Maybe that's better than being dead. But that's not up to me to decide. And so if I can keep you alive and you can do okay, and then, as you say, rehab is improving all the time. Trauma is so much more than what happens in the first half an hour in the recess room or in the pre-hospital environment. It's about therapies. It's about ongoing management. That's why that's part of our trauma best practice guidance. It's not just the beginning. It's all the bits afterwards. And so I, I feel uncomfortable deciding whether or not a patient would have a good quality of life. I know there's intensive care doctors who are much more familiar with this and much more comfortable with it. But as an emergency physician, I find it really difficult. 
Yeah, and I think there are studies out there, aren't there, that if you ask people who have not had a significant disabling illness or injury, you know, would you like to be in this particular state? And they go, oh, no, I don't want to be that. You know, that's always worse than death. And then you actually ask people who have experienced that level of disability afterwards. Well, many of them are very happy to be alive. Thank you very much. So I completely agree with you. I don't think it's a decision which we're making in the emergency room. It's a societal question. It's a philosophical question. I understand why it's been done. I quite like looking at long term functional outcomes. I think they're really important. But for TXA, I think it's a life-saving drug for saving lives. And this study, again, shows that it, it works. So we've talked a lot about airways and TXA this this episode. It's just the way it goes, I suppose, with the, the posts that are written and also the papers that are published. There are two other major things that we've talked about on the blog over the last few weeks, and they're two conferences. And we're not going to go into these in any huge detail, not least because we've started releasing podcasts from the Premier Wessex Conference, but also there's huge amounts of information for you to read there from the people who are actually at the conferences. So Premier Wessex was a fabulous conference, actually. I was delighted to go, organised in Winchester by Clarissa Chase and colleagues, and they very kindly let us take all of the audio from all of the talks, and we're gradually getting those out as best we can. Hopefully you've listened to some of them already. Uh, it's trying to edit those down into a podcast-friendly version, and we'll be releasing those as I get them done, I guess. Uh, as ever, it's dependent a bit on time and having them there. But there's more in the post, and it covers all sorts of major illness, major trauma. And some of it's very familiar to us as adult clinicians. Some of it's very nuanced to people who are paediatricians. Uh, I don't see lots of metabolic disease, for example, but actually even going to that talk was useful. So have a look at those posts. And then also really grateful to Chris Gray for taking us through the Intensive Care Societies Conference, three days where they covered huge amounts of content. For those of you who do intensive care, there's a lot of information there and lots of links to all sorts of other things. Far too much detail for us to go in here, but want to direct you and push you in that direction to read those two. There is actually quite a lot which is relevant there for us in emergency medicine. Some really interesting stuff about debriefing and communication. Some really top tips in there about how you talk to patients, particularly talk to relatives who are then going to share that information with other relatives. So actually, yeah, definitely worth a read if you're in emergency medicine, pre-hospital care, Not you're not an intensivist full-time, definitely go through there. There's some real golden nuggets of information in there. So Simon, that's quite a bumper podcast for us. After all, a bit shorter, but there's been lots of content and it's great to get through it. Lots of medicine, lots of clinical stuff going on. Please do go back and have a look at the blog and read in depth about some of the things we've talked about. We hope to point you in the right direction and to give you food for thought to think about what we're talking about. That invite there, I've said it a few times, but if you do want to contribute to the St. Emily's blog, you'd be more than welcome to submit something to us. And we'd happily talk you through how to make it into a blog friendly piece and get that information out there because there's all sorts happening. And we really like to share that with the wider readers. So Simon, that's our content from the blog for June and a little bit of May. Lots in there, lots for people to take in. Please do go and read as well. Don't just take what me and Simon say as gospel. There's more detail in there, particularly from those conference posts. We recognise that times are tricky at the moment. There's a lot going on. Uh, this week, we've got junior doctor strikes and consultant strikes, and there is undoubtedly a lot of negativity around. But hopefully at St Emelins, we can bring you some of the best of what it means to be an emergency physician. Simon, hopefully you've got some time off over summer. I do. We're off to Cornwall, do a bit of surfing. Nice. I'm going to Italy in a couple of weeks. Can't wait. Really looking forward to it. Turning off the email always a good thing. And Rick Body, I always had the best email auto reply I've ever seen. Uh, but mine will simply say, I'm not here. Uh, please <laughs> get, get in touch in a couple of weeks. But yeah, I hope you're getting some time to rest too. I hope everything that's going on in the UK NHS, you're managing to stay positive. This is still one of the best jobs in the world. And I know that Simon and I have come through training and we're down the other end, but 
I hope that it's still worth it. If we can ever do anything to encourage you to keep going, then please let us know. That's enough from us. Take care. Enjoy your summer. Have a great time. There's lots of positive stuff out there. And if we can get these terms and conditions of service sorted, honestly, the medicine is still fabulous. Just to confirm, it's the pre-hospital antifibrinolytics or trauma coagulate or tra- it's the pre-hospital antifibrinolytics for traumatic coagulopathy and hemorrhage. Oh, come on, Ian. What's wrong with you? It's the pre-hospital antifibrinolytics for traumatic coagulopathy and hemorrhage study. Sometimes they work very hard to get these acronyms, don't they?